Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, July 27th. We begin with a look at the dire situation Alberta ag producers are in due to an incredibly dry and hot season. We get a lay of the land from a local grain farmer and agricultural services manager from Vulcan County. We've all heard the saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. However, a new study indicates the well-known gap has recently increased. We find out why and hear some thoughts on what can be done from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Have you ever tried those little food samples that are regularly offered up at the local supermarket? It's a great marketing tool to garner interest in a new product. And now the cannabis industry is using a similar approach of offering up samples to customers. We find out how it works. And finally, family road trips can be a great way to spend summer vacation, but they can also be quite stressful. We look at some high-tech solutions with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, to help make your next road trip stress-free. Most Alberta farmers, there's the two roads here, going to have a bad year or a non-existent one. Kelly Momberg is the Agricultural Services Manager for Vulcan County and a grain farmer himself near Blackie. Good morning to you, Kelly. Hey, Andy. How's it going? Good. Thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Well, Vulcan County declared an agricultural disaster last week because of this drought. Can you frame exactly what this means and what things are looking like? Uh, basically, the reason Vulcan County declared a disaster, and I noticed, uh, I think there's about another half dozen counties that have done it as well, mostly through southern Alberta and up north. Um, it doesn't really do anything economically. I think it's just more it raises uh, the awareness to the provincial and federal government that we're in pretty dire straits here for uh, complete crop failure. So, you know, maybe it'll it'll help uh, them recognize we do have a big issue here. Big issue. In fact, some farmers are saying that this is worse than the droughts of the 1980s. Is it that bad from what you're hearing and, and from your personal experience? Yeah, no, it's it's really dry. And what makes it worse in the 80s was, you know, back then, you know, we worked our soil a lot more. So in the springtime, lots of our equipment was, uh, you know, things were cultivated before the crop went in just for weed control and fertilizer placement. So what we do now is direct seed so we conserve conserve a lot of moisture you know in comparison to the 20 30 years ago so when it's this dry it's really dry because um you know we're not working soil up like we used to so it's about as dry you know i'm 52 i remember the 80s and yeah it's it's pretty ugly so safe to say that it, it basically would be worse than the 1980s if it wasn't for 2021 technology yeah, for sure. You know, like we, uh, we, you know, there's a lot more, uh, you know, we're more sustainable, more environmental. Um, we don't work the soils as much. Most of these seeders nowadays, they're direct seeded into the ground, so they're conserving a lot more moisture. So, yeah, technology's made it a lot, uh, you know, we're conserving a lot more. So when things are this dry on the, you know, late July, like crops are pretty well done. Actually, I saw a combine out on the way, and I, you know, so combining is going to probably get going here pretty steady through the south in the next 10 days or so okay so yeah that's what i want to talk about is is moving forward what the rest of the summer and moving into the fall will look like as far as salvaging and repurposing those areas that are most damaged is, is there as i said off the beginning some are saying non-existent some are saying it's going to be a tough go yeah you know and there, there's spots throughout like vulcan county um just north of Vulcan, there is a few little showers. Like, there is going to be some crop there. Um, but, you know, I have no idea what that'll be. You know, bushel weights are going to be light. 
but you know, driving to work this morning, uh, you know, there is going to be a, a, a farm, you know, a crop, but yeah, it's definitely going to be well, well below average. Government programs, um, you know, assistance uh, being offered by the provincial government, are they enough to offset losses or is it just kind of a, you know, kind of a propping up temporarily? Well, uh, crop inputs have gotten really expensive over the last few years. But, you know, if you're fortunate enough to take out crop insurance, you know, I think there's the value of the commodities are are high enough. Um, I know the last time we talked, uh, commodity prices were really high. So that will reflect, you know, they do have some options that they do look at the uh, grain prices in the fall compared to what they were in the spring. So um, insurance coverage levels will be higher this fall. By no means are guys going to get rich off of crop insurance this year, but you know if they were if they were lucky enough to take it out, it will cover their input costs. But you know that's that's where it ends. You know these guys also got to feed their families over the winter, so you know it's just another tough year. It's going to be a reload year, and hopefully you know we see some falls. A big or sorry, see some moisture this fall. That's the big thing. Is you know it, it may be a write off, but hopefully we get some rain starting to fire back up here September October and get our uh, moisture levels levels back up in our soils for next year. And that's something, you know, you alluded, we talked to earlier, like a, a few weeks back, and the importance of, you know, this year. I mean, I'm wondering, I'll, I'll, I'll go a couple months ahead here, or a couple weeks ahead here. If, for example, you know, August 10th, we started to get, you know, some half-decent and consistent rain, would that be enough to salvage anything for this season? No, I don't think We're so. Done. Like, okay. you know, um, from what I've seen, you know, even the late crops, the late crops kind of caught some rains there after that heat wave in early July. Um, but no, it, it wouldn't do much. The, you know, what it would do is uh, anything perennial, um, like our grasses, our pastures, our hayland, it would certainly help them. But all, you know, everything that we're growing for the consumer right now is an annual crop. And uh, they've already set, you know, their seeds are being produced as we speak, and they're pretty well tapped out. So anything that's going in the grocery store um, is done, probably, I would say. Well, you know, let's let's talk about, you know, ultimately, you know, people listening to this could be city folk, and I'm sure a large portion are. It's going to hit them more in the pocketbook, isn't it, Kelly? Yeah, it's going to get really interesting. Like, I know even back in, uh, I think we talked about late June, early July, uh, these these grain prices are insane, and I I don't know when it's going to hit the grocery store shelves. But the U.S. is dry, and parts you know the big grain growing guys are the you know the Black Sea area, which is Ukraine and Russians, uh, us Australia, Brazil, and U.S. is probably the biggest guys, and of course China almost you know they pretty well uh, their population they feed for themselves, but. And I'm not hearing any positive out there. I think the grain stocks are pretty low, and you know I've never seen twenty dollar canola going into uh, you know November price in canola right now is twenty bucks. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this this will do to the uh, store, the prices in the grocery store. But it is going to be. I think there's going to be an eye opening here this winter for sure. Is there anything consumers, you know, the average family or the average uh, you know pushing that shopping cart? down the aisles is there anything that, that we can do to help out um is is there one better place to purchase is it you know do you underscore the importance of looking out those looking out for those local items at this point does, does that help oh for sure that um you know every thursdays i think thursdays always called uh farmers market days and they're all over the place i know high river has their big farmers market on uh one of the streets on thursdays you know the Hutterites. We got lots of colonies around this uh, country. You know they they're they got full uh, inspected meat um, 
facilities and grow vegetables and uh you know you you'd be surprised at the savings you'd get going to those some of those markets yeah and then do what you can and uh, you know our heart goes out to you because i know it's a it's a tough 2021 is going to go down in history and not to, not for uh, good news I, I would think anyway kelly so we appreciate you taking the time with us this morning yeah you bet andy Thank you so much. That is uh, Kelly Momberg, of course, Agricultural Services Manager for Vulcan County and a grain farmer himself near Blackie. Progressive tax systems and how the government, you know, distributes money through spending programs is supposed to level the playing field, at least somewhat, when it comes to being able to afford the necessities of life between people of higher and lower incomes. But a new study from the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy says the gap in purchasing power between those income groups is widening. Joining us is the study's co-author, the Scientific Director for Social and Health Policy at the School of Public Policy is Ronald Nebone. Good morning to you, Dr. Ronald Nebone. Good morning, Andy. I want to, I want to ask you this. You know, this your study says progressive taxation and, and the way we redistribute the spending are designed to transfer income from high to low income earners and in a way reduce differences in after-tax purchasing power. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that and in, in how it's different than inflation? Uh, but also, why isn't it working anymore? Well, uh, we you see it on your taxes. So if you have a very high income, then you pay uh, a lot of taxes. Mm-hmm. Those taxes go to the government that, in one hand, they're then out the other door of the government to people with lower income. So they receive large transfers in the form of pensions, in the form of social assistance, in the form of unemployment insurance. And, and this is intentional. And it works very well, by the way, but... Um, the, once you look at the after-tax income of high earners versus low, low earners, that income gap shrinks considerably. Um, what we have noticed over time since about 1995 is the gap has started to grow. But we know that inflation it, it, it does not discriminate as far as stretching those dollars and dollars not going as far. Uh, but as far as that after-tax income, why is it now, and why is why is it not working the way it did back in the day? Well, again, I think it is working. But what we're seeing is uh, there's a race. Oh, okay. So, so people at the top are earning more and more and more income every year. People at the lower end of the income distribution are also earning more income every year. So everyone's doing well. And as we see that the poverty rate has fallen considerably over this time, too. So this is not an issue about poverty. It's about income uh, distribution and how much the wealthy have relative to the lower incomes. So we're seeing a race. People at the high end are earning more and more income. But the income transfers, which are designed to take some of that income and give it to lower income people, it's not keeping up. And so the gap between the two income groups, which was steady mm-hmm. at about $58,000 from 1976 to 1995, that gap is growing. Now, whether that's an issue for public policy look, uh, researchers like myself or governments should be concerned about this another question. So government obviously could change these policies, or do, or do they not want to? Uh, they could change it. And one thing they could do if they think this is an issue is that they could just increase even further the income transfers from rich to poor. Now, the problem with that, because this is how we handled this for the last uh, 50 years, is we allow people to earn whatever they can 
But if you earn a lot, then we're going to transfer an increasing large amount of that from you so we can support people who aren't able to do as well, which is a policy that Canadians, I think, generally support. This is, this is what we, we have a society to do. Uh, so you could, if you wanted to, the government, they could increase the taxes on the rich even further mm-hmm. to increase those transfers. Now, the problem here is that people at the high end are going to start saying, maybe I don't want to stay in Canada anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe I want to move elsewhere. So how else could you do this? Well, you could figure out, well, why is it that the people at the very top are, are earning income, which is so much more than the income being earned, by those at the bottom. What can we do to balance those earned incomes? And that's a much more difficult question, but analysts would point to things like ensuring people invest in education because that's the best way of increasing your earned income. Other people would suggest that maybe we could start to regulate earned incomes and and balance things more like that. These are really difficult public policy questions. Uh, for those who don't think it's a problem, you have to ask, how, how far will you allow this gap to go? And what kind of society will we have if those at the very top are earning many, many, many times those at the very bottom? And is that going to be an issue for us? Dr. Nimone, I'm wondering, this, I'm sure this is not a Canada-specific problem, but do we look at other models across the globe? And are other countries, and I might be putting you on the spot with this question, are other countries getting it right? Um, I think all countries in, in Western democracies, so Canada, the North, North America, Western Europe, are facing the same sort of issues. We've all relied, all of these countries have relied on making these progressive income transfers from rich to poor in order to balance these things out. But we're all experiencing the same thing, is that those who are earning high incomes are earning, their incomes are growing up faster, much faster than those at the bottom. And so we're seeing this gap expand, expand, expand. And the income transfers that we put in place to try to redistribute income is simply not being able to keep up. I'm wondering because, you know, anything in the past 18 months, we have to throwing the into the equation, into the mix of COVID-19. And we, we'd heard at the beginning even that the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poor, and we're going to increase that gap. Does this study take that into account, or is it completely separate? No, we intentionally stopped it in 2019, so we wouldn't have to talk about COVID. <laughs> uh, and, and really, the reason was I wanted to look at these trends without saying, uh, being confused by COVID is, is being the cause. So what's happened during COVID? Uh, the other reason we haven't done that is because this, these statistics haven't come out. So we have to wait and see. Uh, thank you for bringing us details of your study. We appreciate it. You're welcome. It's Dr. Ronald Neenbone, Scientific Director for Social and Health Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. An interesting conundrum. Your thoughts on this? And I mean, if you're making the big bucks, you're thinking, oh, if you want to claw back more, I'm, I work 40, 60, 80 hours a week. I built this business. It, it's a very interesting concept. But, but, you know, at some point, we don't all benefit if uh, people are struggling and can't make ends meet and, you know, can't put food on the table. Your thoughts on this? Because, again, uh, he is from the School of uh, Public Policy at the University of Calgary, not a government official. Not, he's not the one saying this and that and uh, this has to happen. Uh, but what could we do? To, to help this issue that is bigger than, you know, your house and your street, uh, but the whole economy. 
of uh, not just the, the province, but uh, of, of the country. When you go to a pub or a craft brewery, you can say, I'd like to try that lager. And they'll pour a small little a bit out. You can try it, see wet your whistle, see if it's something that interests you. Maybe try a, another sample till you find which pint or, or growler you want to purchase. So why not the same with cannabis? Turns out starting today, one retailer will let you do just that. Joining us with details is Greg Pantelik, the CEO of A Lot. That's A-H-L-O-T, which stands for A Higher Level of Thought. Interesting. I'm very creative when it comes to the title. And uh, we say good morning right now to Greg Pantelik. Good morning, Greg. Hey, hey Greg. good morning, Andy. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Now, this is very interesting to me because, uh, you know, obviously, as I, I gave that reference to at a brew pub, wanting to sample a beer before you put down your money and enjoy a pint. But is it legal to sample cannabis in uh, stores in, in Canada? Because I know at the, the brew pub, you're allowed to have a sample. Yeah, so you can't, uh, you can't be consuming cannabis in the actual retail environment. You can only consume cannabis where legally uh, permitted. Uh, but that said, the program, uh, you know, the sample bylaw program that we're bringing, uh, you know, really draws influence from traditional sampling. And we brought that to the cannabis industry uh, in a compliant manner. And basically, the, the, the program, in a nutshell, is designed to drive trial uh, awareness and sales you know, through a really limited quantity, sample-sized offering at a sample-friendly price point. Uh, I'm not, not sure how familiar you are with the industry, but it's very difficult for cannabis retailers and brands, you know, to be very creative, uh, to market and, and promote products in a compliant, appropriate, you know, safe and responsible way. But uh, while you can't stand on the street corner and hand out joints for free, mm-hmm. uh, what you can do is you can offer sample size joints at sample friendly pricing, in this case, a dollar in licensed retail uh, environments. And, you know, when we were researching this program and bringing it to market, you know, compliance was something we were very conscious of and that's why alberta in particular is really interesting why we're rolling out the program here because uh, when we researched this the program from a compliance perspective with the aglc we learned that there's no uh, uh there's no actual price floor um so as long as it's a responsible price and we price that at a dollar so mm-hmm. you know you're not giving it away for free uh, but this really is i think as close as you can get to costco on a saturday morning but compliant and the cannabis equivalent is this just the, the next step in the evolution of cannabis sales in Canada? Because, you know, previously there was absolutely no marketing whatsoever. You saw the storefront sign and, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I would say that, you know, a lot as a company, we are a marketing-focused company. We've been kind of trailblazers in the marketing uh, uh, component and focus of, of the cannabis industry. Uh, but, you know, this is still very much, again, compliant, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And being done in nine, in an 18-plus environment in Alberta, in 19-plus environments across the country. Um, so, you know, we know that uh, doing this in-store uh, and being able to access... Uh, Are you there, Greg? Yeah, you, broke up. yeah you just broke up just a bit there. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, going back the past 16, 17 months have been very difficult on, on all sorts of businesses. Every corner of the economy seems to be the case. But we do know that liquor sales were up during the pandemic. How did the cannabis market fare over the pandemic? Uh, the cannabis market fared quite well, uh, you know, despite enduring a significant amount of challenges, both including increased competition, you know, a number of 
uh, 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 reduced operating capacity and obviously the stricter marketing regulations that cannabis has over over uh, uh, the beverage alcohol industry. But what we've seen so far is, uh, you know, particularly with the pre-roll category, um, that, that there's been a significant amount of, of increase. Pre-roll sales have grown, I think, you know, close to 200% since last year, and our top three selling pro- uh, product category, especially as we enter into the summer months. And I think in Alberta in particular, you know, uh, spending on cannabis, uh, particularly around pre-rolls, is 40% greater uh, uh, than there was last year. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. You know, first of all, you know, with, with, I think people want to be out and about, right? And I think that was witnessed firsthand, uh, with the stampede, uh, uh, last week or, or the week before. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, people want to be out and about and pre-rolls are a really convenient format for that. It's a grab and go format. There's also larger formats of cannabis. So, you know, you probably, probably heard the, uh, the saying puff, puff, pass. But I think, you know, in a post-COVID environment, uh, uh, that, you know, that behavior is changing. And now people are, 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 are purchasing more, more cannabis, particularly pre-rolls, in order to be shared with others. And everyone gets their own one as opposed to, to sharing the same one. And I think lastly, there's just more, you know, higher quality, craft quality flour uh, and unique legacy brands like this Grizzlers brand that's in our sample program first. Um, that's helping people cross over kind of from the legacy cannabis market to the legal cannabis market. Very interesting marketing and you know, the sample program. Thank you for shedding some light on it, Greg. We appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. That's Greg uh, Pantelic. A lot. That's A H L O T, a higher level of thought. He's the CEO of the company. You can uh, learn more online at a lot, A H L O T dot com. Tis the season for hitting the road. Summer road trips are a tradition for many Alberta families. And our gadget guy, Mike Yanni, is joining us this morning to talk about the tech we can use to make it a more memorable road trip. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. It's funny. If we would have had this conversation a couple years ago, I would have said, yeah, portable Blu-ray players and mini screens for the backseat of the vehicle. But man, technology has changed so much that even if I said a Wi-Fi hotspot, you can do all of that with your smartphone so I wanted to do something different, think outside of the box, and let's let's look at gadgets that can help the parents on <laughs> some of those long road trips. Oh, finally, with keeping us in mind when it comes to the road trips. I like that. What do you got for us? Well, the first one I want to talk about is uh, it's a cooler called a wagon cooler. Uh, this is interesting because, yeah, of course, you throw your drinks in there and it's going to keep it chilled. It plugs into the 12-volt of your vehicle, and this actually brings down the temperature of the cooler to about 2 degrees Celsius, Ooh. which is pretty good. But this is what I love about this. You can flip it around and you can turn it into a warmer. Oh. So if you were going through a drive-thru and maybe little Billy's sleeping in the back seat, maybe his hamburger's going to get cold, you can toss it in there and this will actually keep everything inside up warm up to about 60 degrees Celsius. Wow. Yeah, that's about 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's not too bad. So I love the fact that you can use it as a cooler or a warmer at the same time. So if you're, you know, uh, going to the big cookout at Auntie Peg's house, the food will be ready. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's so many uses for that, right? Absolutely. So we got the cooler taken care of. Uh, what about keeping our beverages the perfect temperature? I don't know about you, but on a summer road trip, yeah, if it's you know middle of the afternoon, I love a Slurpee or something cold. However, if you're starting off early in the morning, I need that cup of coffee. There's a mug out there called the Ember Mug, and it's a travel thermos. But what's cool about this is a battery and a heating coil in it. You charge it. It's good to go for three to four hours. And there's an app that's accompanied with it, and you can actually set the exact 
temperature of what you want your beverage to be at. Plus, it'll ask you, what are you drinking, a latte or a coffee? And it'll know that, well, beverages with milk shouldn't be quite as warm. So it's smart enough to know not to overheat beverages as well, which I think is pretty cool. I don't know if you knew about this, and I'm not condoning this by any means, mm-hmm. but did you also know you can buy kettles for your car? A kettle for, like, like boiling water kettle? Yeah, yeah, they sell car <sighs> kettles now. And once again, not saying this is a good thing, but you can buy microwaves for your car too now. Oh, my gosh. Talk about distracted driving when you're warming up some KD and have that kettle going. Could be a little on the dangerous side. I'm sure they've kept safety inside, but, boy, you don't have to leave the car anymore. (laughs) Hey, but if you know if you need that hungry man dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're good to go. All right. Now, uh, you know, maybe you're a passenger because I know you don't want to be wearing your noise-canceling headphones when you're in the driver's seat. But, yeah, sometimes, particularly if you have a big family, you want to get away from it if you're a passenger as an adult. Let's talk about these headphones. You know, I've never owned a pair of noise-canceling headphones. Do they really cancel out all the noise? Andy, they are a game-changer. Uh, I will say you get what you pay for. Don't cheap out on noise-canceling headphones. The ones that are under $100, for the most part, are not that good. But some of the higher-end ones, Sony makes some really amazing ones. They make a world of difference. Even if you're not listening to music, you can just turn on the noise cancellation, put them on, and it silences everything. So, you know, let the kids fight in the back seat. Noise cancellation headphones, they are a game-changer for, for anyone who's got kids in the car. Or even... Uh, Noisy uh, adults in the backseat. Could be the case. And, and, you know, you mentioned the price point is important to get a good quality pair. If, I, if I've got one that really passes the test, how much am I going to be shelling out? You're probably looking around the $200 range. Ooh. And, I will, and I will say something about this, too. You can get the little earbuds, too, that do have some noise cancellation. But I do find some of the best ones are the ones that go over the ear, the cup, the older style headphones, because they make a better seal around the ear. That being said, some of the uh, the smaller earbuds do have noise cancellation, but I'm, I'm telling you, they're not quite as good. Oh, sounds great, though. Nevertheless, uh, things that we can do to make those holidays more memorable. Have a happy vacation, uh, Mike, and get out there and enjoy it. Thank you. My pleasure. He is the Gadget Guy, Mike Yanni. You can find him on social media if you search the Gadget Guy. And on YouTube, you'll find his channel by searching Gadget Guy Mike Yanni. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.